This is the Oanda Podcast. Well, this is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, talking to Oanda senior market analysts across the world. And today we're joined from London by senior market analyst Craig Earlham. Good afternoon, Craig. How are you doing? Good afternoon. I'm good. How are you? Very well. And I'm also delighted to say that today we're joined from New York by Oanda's general counsel, Lisa Shemi, to talk about some of the legal aspects of the FX sector. Lisa joined Oanda late last year from SIBO Global Markets. That's a global exchange holding company where she served as chief legal officer of its FX trading venues. And before that, she spent 10 years with JP Morgan's Investment Bank and has been active in FX-related industry groups for many years. Lisa, good afternoon from London. Good morning from New York. Thanks so much for having me. It really is great to have you on. But before we talk to you, I just wanted to get the latest market news from Craig. Now, Craig, European markets have been pretty choppy. Part of the reason is that they are focused on the impact that potential increased sanctions on Russia is going to have on the cost of energy and commodities. And we're also perhaps expecting a sharp slowdown in China as well, plus more rate hikes on the horizon. So it is a confusing picture at the moment, is it not? It is. Uh, it feels like really the markets have been shopping now for a few weeks, to be honest, and not just the equity markets, really, even to an extent, the commodity markets uh, and the FX markets as well. And it's hard because there's so much happening in the markets right now. There's so much to talk about, whether that is the, the terrible circumstances that we're seeing in Ukraine or whether that's uh, interest rates and inflation and the what's happening with the yield curve and the inversions and is that a recession warning etc there's uh, obviously other aspects of the commodity space as well with regards to the nuclear deal with iran which seems to have kind of fallen out the headlines recently despite the fact that we were so close to a deal being reached the cost of living crisis the list goes on and on and on there's so much to talk about but it feels like we've kind of entered a period in the last few weeks when there hasn't been any significant movement and yes, we've seen plenty of headlines. There's, I, I can't remember a time when we've seen so many massive headlines uh, throughout the day. Uh, but rather than lead to these big moves in the markets that we saw a month ago when all of this was relatively new and things to be, seem to be moving quite quickly, these headlines have just created this choppiness in the markets, which means plenty of intraday volatility, but not much on the uh, kind of directional side of things. Indeed. And there's the added aspect of the lowering of China's growth forecast. I mean, last year we were looking at 8% and now they're saying that it will grow at just 5% this year. That's going to be a big impact, isn't it? If it achieves that, I mean, everything I've just listed there didn't even include the fact that we're now seeing lockdowns in parts of China, which is which is huge because obviously apart from being one of the kind of economic engines for the global economy. We've seen over the course of the last two years how important it is from a supply chain supply chain aspect. We haven't really seen the, the, the scale of lockdowns that we're now seeing in parts of China to try and contain the virus. So the, this, again, is, is hugely, uh, hugely significant and, and a big story that's ha- having uh, certainly having an effect on uh, sentiment in, in Asia, but also can start to have a more of a knock-on effect if this becomes more widespread. We've seen what the impacts of disruptions to global supply chains have been. If we start to see more prolonged lockdowns in China, then we could see things turn more significant even uh, once more. So like I say, there's so many different things to be watching right now. Some things look as though they're improving, like the negotiations that are happening currently between Ukraine and Russia virtually at the start of the week. But we do seem to be making some gradual progress. So that's something that the markets are latching onto from a positive standpoint. The lockdowns are obviously having a slightly negative impact. I don't really think people, traders, 
know how to take uh, what's happening with interest rates and inflation right now. We're now talking about the US increasing interest rates in a supersized manner. And by that, I mean, rather than 25 basis point increments, now we're talking about supersized rate hikes of 50 basis points at maybe more than one, maybe two or three consecutive meetings coming up. That's a massive shift. We haven't seen a 50 basis point rate hike from the Federal Reserve uh, in more than 20 years. So this is a significant moment. So I think investors are struggling to know how to take that. Do we look at the fact that they're doing it because the economy is really healthy, the labor market's really tight, wages are rising, we need to take some of the heat out of the market, or is it, a, is it a risk, is it a threat? That's why there's so much focus now on the yield curves and the inversions we're seeing there, which historically have been recession warning indicators. So like I say, there's so much to absorb right now, and I think all of this trying to create a kind of picture uh, for what this means for the outlook for the global economy over the next six months, 12 months, 24 months, is what's creating so much choppiness in these markets. Let's get back to Lisa Shemi in New York to talk about some of the legal aspects of the FX sector. Once again, Lisa, great to have you on. FX isn't necessarily an obvious sector for a lawyer to enter. I'm interested to know what first attracted you to joining Oanda? Thanks again for having me, Johnny. Yes, that's definitely true. Even my law school classmates think that FX and derivatives is this crazy, mysterious field that no one understands. So (laughs) I can perpetuate the myth that I'm smarter than I really am. Um, (laughs) I joined JP Morgan in 2006 after having worked as a derivatives lawyer before that. Um, Obviously, that meant I was working with a major investment bank during the financial crisis. And I think many of my fellow lawyers at the time in my field um, would agree that we're sort of still suffering from PTSD from that period when really many of us rapidly went from serving primarily as transactional lawyers to becoming really truly regulatory lawyers. When I joined JP Morgan, I was brought in to cover Latin America derivatives, and I didn't have an FX background before that. But You can imagine when interest rate swaps, credit default swaps, or even inflation swaps are done on LATAM underlyings, by definition, they have an FX component. And over time, I really learned that area and became, you know, a bit of a subject matter expert in FX. When Dodd-Frank was passed in 2010, I focused on its implementation as it related to FX and soon learned that FX was in many cases kind of the sad cousin of the rest of the derivatives market and wasn't really specifically considered when many of those swaps rules were crafted. It was sort of treated as an offshoot of derivatives. So through several industry groups that I was fortunate to be involved with, we spent years trying to help the CFTC, the U.S. primary regulator of this market, to sort of fit those rules that were passed under Dodd-Frank into the practical idiosyncrasies of how the FX market really works. And just an example for your listeners, obviously, there's a very prevalent prime brokerage model in FX, and those swap rules didn't really contemplate FXPB, which is so well understood in the FX market, but kind of ignored through those rules. So some of those rules had to be tweaked or even amended to accommodate that model. After JP Morgan and my five-year stint at Ciro, the opportunity to join Oanda came along and it was really hard to pass up. Although Oanda is a retail broker and my experience had almost exclusively been on the institutional side before that, 
I'm happy to say that my hope that much of my prior experience has proved to be transferable to this new market. Most importantly, I spent my career supporting regulated markets as well as playing a small role in the emergence of new market standards for the sector. So Oanda's reputation as a regulated broker, which considers its obligations to its regulators and its clients as being paramount, made this opportunity perfect at this stage of my career. And I'll just say that it's also been so exciting to take on the challenge of serving as a GC to a global and multi-asset organization that's growing in all directions, pretty much the jackpot at this stage of my career. And some of our listeners will be aware of the FX Global Code. You, of course, were involved in creating the code. And even though it doesn't apply to retail, You're a big advocate, aren't you, of following the spirit of the code in the same way as required by the wholesale market? So I'm glad you asked about the FX Global Code. Over many years, um, people who know me will know that I've been a bit of an evangelist about the code. Um, My husband, who's not an FX guy, knows all about it since I think I was talking about it in my sleep during the years when we were contributing to its development. I know that is extremely embarrassing fact. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, In a nutshell, as your listeners are no doubt very much aware, uh, there were several unfortunate, let's call them, FX-related manipulation incidents over the years. And there was genuine concern uh, around that time about the FX market not being subject to much regulation or oversight at all, and about the lack of agreed market standards of conduct. So in around 2014, a collaboration emerged among market participants, including central banks across the globe, which came together to develop a common set of guidelines to promote the um, effective functioning of the wholesale FX market. So as you can imagine, no small feat there to get people all over the world to agree on the way this market should be run. So even though the code is voluntary, it's not strictly speaking a regulatory requirement, market participants can publicly adhere to its principles and many types of market participants are essentially required to do so for various reasons. That said, as you said, the code was not developed to cover retail market participants like OANDA. So how does the code affect my job at OANDA? Over the last few years of working on the code on behalf of some industry groups and on behalf of the organizations I've worked with, I've been fortunate to have participated in a bunch of panel discussions at various events. And I always tell this story to really illustrate the crux of, I think, what it really stands for. I was on a panel a couple of years ago, and the panel was really designed to try to push certain kinds of market participants who hadn't been interested in the code at all to adhere, like corporates and end users and even some asset managers. And one of the guys on my panel who was with an asset manager, you know, after I talked about, you know, again, my trying to explain the value of adhering, he sort of sat back and with perfect comic timing, he said, You know, when I was a little kid, my parents taught me to be honest and to do the right thing. I already know that. Why do I need to adhere to the code to say I'm going to do that? And of course, after we laughed and were frustrated, et cetera, in a way, he really was right. At the end of the day, that's what the code can be boiled down to, being transparent with your clients and with other market participants and treating them fairly. So that's what I advocate for as OANDA's GC, letting our clients know what we offer, 
what we're doing, how we treat them, and adhering to the spirit of the global code and doing the right thing. You know, I know that sounds simple, but I wouldn't have joined a company that had any other reputation. And it does sound simple, doesn't it? But of course, customer protection is absolutely a key priority. Exactly. It really is. And it's a critical way that retail differs from the institutional market where most of my experience came from. Obviously, individual FX traders are typically trading much lower sizes than institutional market participants. And the rules around customer protection and fairness are in some ways more specific when serving that segment of the market, as they, as I'm sure all can agree they should be. Um, just as an example, in the United States, a retail foreign exchange broker like Oanda is, as you can imagine, subject to rules designed to protect the customer, whether they be minimal capital requirements, rules around disclosures, or minimum liquid asset requirements. And institutional spot effects market participants, in a way, may actually be subject, of course, depending on the institution, to fewer rules than an RFED like us. Um, since spot FX falls outside of the definition of a swap under Dodd-Frank. So yes, um, certainly customer protection is a huge focus for us as lawyers um, and for the company as a whole. Okay, so let's focus a bit more on retail FX. One issue that is particularly relevant at the moment is sanctions. So how does the current international crisis affect Oanda from that aspect? Sure. So as Craig mentioned as well, sanctions is, of course, top of mind on um, this really as we navigate this extremely distressing time in the world. Um, so as we all know, governments around the world have imposed new sanctions or strengthened existing sanctions against Russia and many Russian market participants and individuals. So lawyers around the world are working overtime to refresh their institution sanctions compliance efforts. You know, in a sort of counterintuitive way, the new reality with expanded sanctions in some ways makes our job easier, although I can think of several colleagues who will disagree with me on that. Before the crisis, U.S. companies, just as an example, were able to do some types of limited business with some Russian actors who were subject to US sanctions, which imposed obligations on lawyers to thread a very narrow needle to find what was permissible and ensure that their institutions didn't cross that line into prohibited business practices. But today, the expanded sanctions make threading that needle really almost impossible. So it's almost a blunter instrument for us on the legal side. But, you know, as I said, the role of companies, legal and compliance departments has grown with respect to its responsibilities to monitor sanctions compliance. One other aspect of this to raise just as an example of how fraught this area is and complicated as a lawyer is to, you know, use as an example the intersection between sanctions compliance and cybersecurity, which is obviously another area where risks are continuously growing. As an example of those risks, of course, your listeners are, I'm sure, very much aware of the increased proliferation of ransomware attacks going on globally. And in the United States, the U.S. Treasury has made clear, um, which is hard to believe, but absolutely true, 
that paying a hacker a ransom does not relieve an institution of its obligation to abide by U.S. sanctions. So if a Russian hacker infiltrates your system and demands a ransom, as though making those split-second decisions weren't challenging enough, we also have to be mindful that we could be violating sanctions if we determine that paying the malicious actor is the preferred response and that actor is itself subject to sanctions. Obviously, these issues don't only affect the retail market, not at all, but they're a constant struggle for lawyers across the financial services industry today. Yeah, very interesting. We talk a lot about crypto on this podcast, Lisa, and I know many of our listeners have engaged in this emerging asset class. According to the World Economic Forum, the total market cap of digital currencies is now $1.7 trillion. That's an eye-watering amount, and over $90 billion is traded every day. There is no international coordinated regulation of crypto. I know that uh, where you are in the USA, they're now focusing more keenly on this. But what challenges does crypto hold for you? Well, um, I knew I wouldn't get through a podcast on financial markets without talking about crypto, certainly the subject of the day. <laughs> and, and, you know, it feels like only yesterday in my own career that really everyone I knew in my circles was dismissing crypto as a fad. Maybe not everyone. Many people were dismissing it. And I think even more dramatically, thinkers in the area were really considering crypto to be a market that was way too small to be able to absorb all of the new derivatives products that were emerging all around it and all these really innovative ideas about how to enter into derivatives transactions on cryptocurrencies. As just an example of that, I had some experience trying to design an NDF, a non-deliverable forward on Bitcoin a few years ago. So as you know, Johnny, an, an NDF requires a fixing rate and a typical NDF on an emerging markets currency might point to a central bank FX rate to settle that trade. And the way the NDF market works and has worked over, over quite some time is that this agreed market standard and agreed fixing rate allowed for those NDFs to be essentially fungible and hedgeable, perfectly hedgeable. But with Bitcoin, at least at the time, there wasn't an accepted fixing rate, a rate that could be used by enough critical mass of the market to allow market participants to perfectly hedge those trades, essentially making them fungible. So that effort died at the time, despite a lot of interest in doing it from various clients and market participants that we were working with. But today there are several exchanges that offer NDFs on various cryptocurrencies, and there are so many financial instruments out there on this rapidly emerging asset classes, as you can imagine. So what is the challenge for lawyers when dealing in this crazy, fascinating market? Well, obviously, it's the regulatory aspect of crypto, as you said, which is truly changing almost by the day. There isn't a uniform, similar approach, as you mentioned, by regulators across jurisdictions. So it's really challenging to create, for any market participant, to create a global market in the way it has been possible with the FX market. There isn't even complete consensus within individual jurisdictions on how crypto could, should be regulated. As you know, the CFTC and the SEC in the United States have been going back and forth around which agency should regulate what in terms of crypto. Is an instrument a commodity? Is it a security? And in a way, that uncertainty is 
even reminiscent of the early Dodd-Frank days when there was a dividing line between those two agencies in a way that was almost arbitrary in terms of which one of them would regulate which part of that swaps market. Um, so we'll see whether any, any kind of global approach to crypto regulation emerges in the next few years. For now, it's clear that many regulators around the world are, are catching up and stepping up to propose new regulations or even new regulatory regimes on the crypto market, which, um, you know, as I said, makes creating a global business in crypto really challenging. So finally, is it a question of figuring out how to launch businesses at a time when the regulation is changing by the day and is not the same in all of the jurisdictions. Exactly. It's really a moving target. That said, you know, our experience with our own regulators has been very positive in this regard. Where, you know, whereas they may have wanted to take a hands-off approach to crypto regulation in the past, they certainly are not doing so now. So we believe that openly communicating with our regulators around the world on our plans is the way to go. And at the end of the day, I think, as I've said a few times, transparency is key, even while we are fortunate enough to be working on creative ideas for really the future of the trading markets. Lisa, really interesting to talk to you today. Thank you very much for joining us on the Oanda Market Insights podcast. Thank you so much, Johnny. It was such a pleasure to join you. Look forward to doing it again. Craig, very interesting to hear from Lisa there, particularly about the sanctions and the impact that those have had. And of course, that's very much where we've been focused on today, the potential increased sanctions on Russia and the effect that's going to have on energy and commodity prices and so on. Yeah, Europe's still going to stay away for now from things like natural gas and uh, oil where it's still very reliant but you can see today that we're seeing some movement on coal and the phase out, phasing out of uh, coal imports from Russia. This is kind of one of these early steps towards effectively making itself less energy reliant on Russia and probably really cutting Russia out the loop altogether over the course of the next few years. So we've seen some movement on that side. We've also seen some increased sanctions on, on various Russian banks and individuals and oligarchs as well. Maybe a slight tweak of previous sanctions as well, trying to close loopholes etc just kind of tightening the screw uh, on that side of things and we've also seen some uh, tightening of sanctions from the treasury as well from the US uh, in relation to the uh, dollar debt repayments from the Russian government uh, using accounts at US banks um, so they've effectively halted that and forcing Russia to kind of look internally at the reserves that they have in order to avoid defaulting on its dollar-denominated debt, just really, again, making life even harder for the Kremlin. And I wonder if maybe there's an FX angle at this as well. Um, we've seen how the Russia has artificially propped up the ruble by forcing uh, Russian exporters to convert their foreign currency to ruble with 80% of their uh, of their income, uh, the incoming currency, I should say, um, and also with the European uh, gas payments as well, using Gazprom Bank, converting that as well at source. In other words, trying to artificially prop up the ruble in the FX market. So I wonder if there's a, an angle here as well to try and make life harder on that side of things. Uh, but again, all what we're effectively seeing is because of the atrocities which we've seen reported over the weekend, you can see that the West is very much still trying to ramp up uh, their sanctions against Russia, further make life hard uh, for the Kremlin and further inflict pain on the economy to try and discourage uh, Putin from the terrible uh, atrocities that we're seeing unfold. And the only thing is, it hasn't clearly been enough of a deterrent so far. So I think we're going to have to see much more. But 
to an extent, Europe in particular has its hands tied because of its energy reliance on Russia, which is going to take time to undo. Okay, Craig, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. This is the Oanda Podcast.